0: welcome everyone to creating a family talk about adoption and foster care i'm dawn davenport your host and the director of creating a family today we're going to be talking about disrupting birth order in adoption and foster care a really important topic in the world so that we in the worlds that we live in we will be talking with Teresa Bernou. she is a licensed clinical social worker at adoption center of illinois she oversees their domestic program and has experience with kinship foster and international adoption. We also have Mark Lakava. He is also a licensed clinical social worker and the chief clinical officer at Spence Chapin Services to Family and Children, an adoption organization in New York City. Welcome, Mark and Teresa, to Creating a Family. This is an important topic and I am thrilled to have you around to talk about it.
1: Hi, Dawn. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate being back.
0: Uh, there are no hard and fast rules in adoption and and in some ways, this is an evolving issue about uh, whether or not to change the birth order of a family through adoption. I think in the past in the distant past, there was a firm uh, kind of a prohibition many agencies had on that uh, and Now I think it has evolved and and that 's what we 're going to be talking about about the when you should do it, when you should not, what are some warning signs, and all of that. So let's start with with the positive. What are some of the pros for uh, why you might want to disrupt birth order? And and by disrupt birth order, of course, I I think it's self-evident, but let me just say that that means that when you bring a child into the family who is Changes the order it becomes the older child and therefore the oldest child existing child in the family then becomes the second child in the family or and, and, and realistically we always disrupt birth order anytime we bring a new child an infant into a family because the former youngest child then is no longer the youngest. but we are usually referring in the world of adoption to changing the birth order by bringing a child into who is older than a child that is already into the family is, um, let's see, Mark, would you say that that is a good summary of a good definition of disrupting birth order?
1: Yes, I think it's an excellent definition.
0: All right, Teresa, when are some cases where disrupting birth order might make sense? Why would somebody even ever consider that?
2: Well, certainly when we think about disrupting birth order, we're typically talking about older children. And so foster care and um, international adoption, children living in institutionalized care. Um, and so, and also kinship adoption, which I think we often forget about. And so those are three, um, common and really good reasons that you might consider growing your family in this
0: way. And we should add that that this also, you could disrupt birth order through fostering. So we, we should also note that it's not just adoption, but we could disrupt birth order by bringing in a foster child. uh, Absolutely. Kinship or otherwise. All right. Uh, Mark, are there any other thoughts about why you would? I mean, th- that's the primary one we think of is that without, we would certainly be limiting the potential homes for children who are past infancy. Any other pros that we need to think about? Um, I, I
1: don't think you can underestimate what you had just said, Dawn. The fact that, you know, if you take a child out of a congregate care setting, an orphanage, uh, a group home, um, foster care that seems to go on forever, that you've done a great service to this child. All the research is showing that children grow and develop much better in a family-like setting than they would in a congregate care or a type of setting that is not stable. Um, So that would probably be the main factor for doing this. And lots of times when you're thinking of international adoption, sometimes you don't exactly get what you're asking for or what you, what you think, what you want, and you have to kind of reconsider, mm-hmm. can I handle an older child? Do I want an older child? Will he or she fit into my family structure or what I was thinking about when I was thinking about adoption?
0: And and we're going to be talking about some of the concerns and things that parents need. The, the rest of the interview will be talking about some of the concerns that parents issues that parents need to think about before they do this to know whether or not their family is a good one in order to do that. So Mark, which birth order of child, of children are most impacted by the disruption? A, a, if, if a child comes in and displaces the older child, is that harder than if a child comes into the middle of the family and is just older than a middle child versus, as we said, Anytime we add a child through birth to a family, we disrupt this. The youngest child's position is since disrupted. So is there any research or just uh, or from your experience, which is the hardest uh, position of the family to be knocked out of? There
1: is some research. It's limited. But it does suggest that when you knock out the oldest child in the family, that it'll create more chaos or, or more behave, or more problems than if you were to displace the youngest child. And it also really depends on their age because the oldest child always is, is slightly viewed differently as having more responsibilities as looking over the child, of feeling themselves a bit more mature. So when you take that child out of that position of loosely saying leadership, you're taking something away from them that they might, that they probably value. Um, mm-hmm. And also when we're adopting an older child, they chronologically, they might be older, but cognitively, emotionally, they might be younger, which then adds a whole nother piece to the mix.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're going to come back to that because you were absolutely right that the discrepancy between age, emo- actual age, chronological age, and emotional and developmental age is, is a big one. Uh, Teresa, Mark... Uh, in his discussion was talking about that the age of the child of both children uh, has an impact on how the children perceive the disruption. What age of child is, is most, is, is most disrupted by having her, and it could be a range obviously, by having her birth order changed. So
2: certainly the younger the child, the less disruptive this will be. Um, they like to say that like birth to three is going to be the least disruptive because they haven't really um, developed an awareness for their particular role in the family or, um, you know, developed that sense of power (laughs) within that family. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And also I would like to add that, for larger families um, speaking as one of five, you know, there are just so many different family dynamics going on in um, within those relationships that it typically isn't as much of a struggle for larger families or larger sibling groups as it would be for maybe, um, you know, if you're adding to one, you know, like a single child as it would be for say a family of five children, as far as the particular age that maybe it would become problematic, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not aware of any hard and fast rules. And if there were, I don't know that I would really subscribe to them. I think that it really is a case-by-case basis situation, and you just need to assess the needs and strengths of each individual family and family member.
0: Okay, and, and you said something about the age gap, and it makes me wonder, is there any evidence that would say that if there is a large age gap between the child being brought in and the child, the older child being disrupted, Let's say uh, the child is the oldest child and existing in the family was eight, and the child being brought in is 16. Is that does that help with the lack of feeling of being displaced, Mark? Or or, or what do you know about that as far as the age gap issue?
1: It could have some. And once again, there's just there are so many variables. Uh, When you're looking at that type of age gap, it really depends, I would have to say, on the maturity. And the emotional stability of the 16 year old. Is he someone who the eight year old is going to look up to and enjoy as an older brother or sister? Are they going to be able to nurture them like a younger sibling? Or will it create a lot of chaos in the home until that child, the older child, the 16 year old, finds their place? So I would have to agree with Therese on that. Every family dynamic is, is different. And there's a lot that the parents can do and would need to do to really kind of help this child adjust because an older child of that age comes in with a completely different set of needs than let's just older child who comes in at 10 and the the, the previous oldest child was eight. You're looking at a different developmental stage. You're looking at possibly even more trauma. You're looking at a family history that they're still connected to. All these things all lead to how the child will adjust and how the family will adjust.
0: Okay. So now let's talk. move into talking about some specific issues that families often face when they change the birth order within the family. One of them is the age old uh, sibling rivalry, which can exist regardless in a family, but can be exacerbated when you disrupt birth order. Let's talk some about that, Teresa. How does disrupting birth order potentially increase sibling rivalry? Sure.
2: So, um, I mean, having to share mom and dad's or dad and dad and mom and mom's uh, um, attention, and um, not getting quite as much time with them as you may have before, and certainly, you know, with you know the virtual twinning or artificial twinning when a family adopts a child of similar age to a child who's already in the family. You know, there can be kind of like this sense of competition, they say.
0: We'll circle back to that. And we're going to talk about that in its own, because I agree with you. I think that presents some totally separate issues. Okay, I'll pause on that one then. Um,
2: but yeah, certainly just the sibling rivalry that you can um, imagine in any family dynamic, you know, whether it's a newborn and they're stealing, um, you know, the parents' attention um, and the life you were previously used to is changing and maybe you don't like it. And so mm-hmm. um, that's kind of... Some resentment on the child's end, and, and you know the the obvious trigger for that or the cause of that is the child that just recently joined the family.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's exacerbated because the once oldest child uh, now is displaced from from that honorary position. And, and let's talk a little about how families often have different uh, different rules, different expectations. What are some of the, the perks that come along oftentimes that parents are even unaware of? Uh, I've heard this so often where parents really had not been all that aware of the perks that they had been giving the older child because they didn't seem like big perks to the parents but were to the children. Mark, uh, thoughts on the uh, another issue being that the uh, oldest, the former oldest child, the now second child is feeling displaced. So let's discuss some of the ways that that child might be feeling displaced.
1: With children, it's usually coming out and even teenagers in behavior. Uh, and that behavior can look like they could regress themselves a little bit. They were perfectly on point, on target for a 10-year-old, but an older child comes into the house, the way they might show their resent, their anger, is by acting younger, by doing some type of temper tantrum, um, by being more obstinate, maybe acting out, being a little bit more oppositional, defiant. All these things that can come out with a younger child who's been displaced. It could look like sleep patterns. Their sleep could be thrown off, Mm -hmm. Um, more argumentative. They're kind of the things that you wanna look out for. And as a parent, figure out how best to support your child that's been in the home. And at the same time, how to to help the child who just moved into the home Mm -hmm. feel like this is their home also.
0: Mm -hmm. I should also say some children also become very withdrawn Uh, And that's depending on their personality and the dynamics in the family. That's another way that we might see. Hmm. What are some of the typical privileges that we give, we as parents, I should say, give older children? And I'm going to share one that was shared with me by one of the family who had adopted a, I think they had a, a, I think their eldest was nine and they adopted a 10-year-old. And the rule in their family, and and it really wasn't a rule. It was the car seats were in the back, uh, in the second row of their car. And so the 10-year-old always got to sit in the front. And the mother was totally, had never thought about that as a privilege because in her mind, it was simply that the car seats, you know, the rules were that car seats had to be in the back of the car and that the only extra seat that was left was the, the passenger seat in the front but it turned out that from for her oldest was a huge perk a huge privilege that she was not even aware she was giving it was she was totally taken aback and and then when the new child came in it was a huge battle as to there's only one passenger seat so who was going to get it so it there were so many things she had not thought of that were the privileges the obvious one being of course staying up later at night she that was the only one she had really thought of so Teresa, any, th- any ideas on other uh, some of the other privileges that families often base on age that parents need to think about when they're bringing, especially if the privilege is such that it can't be automatically shared?
2: Yeah, the first one that's coming to mind is bedrooms. And um, oftentimes oh, the eldest might have their own bedroom um, and the younger ones might have to share. And so, um, that arrangement can certainly change when you add a new family member to the house.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And other, I think we sometimes don't view certain responsibilities and like chores as privileges, but you know, when you are having the oldest child, like they maybe babysit the younger siblings, uh, it's just that sense of responsibility. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I think also enjoy being the ones in charge and being able to bus the younger ones around. Mm-hmm. And then changes because someone else has entered this family dynamic and maybe now they're the ones that are, you know, bossing Mm -hmm. the oldest one around, Mm -hmm. you can maybe a little bit of resentment might build there or, you know, they are no longer, you know, they've lost a little bit of that identity that they used to be the one in charge. And so um, smaller things like that, that maybe parents wouldn't think of as being a privilege, but in the eyes of a child that might be one of the few areas where they felt they held a little bit of authority. So those are just a few examples. I don't know if Mark has something to add to that.
1: I was just thinking even little things like um, the parent goes to the store or whatever, and he says, depending on the you child, watch, you watch the kids and tell me if they do anything wrong. Or that, That's a responsibility. Mm-hmm. But yeah. The oldest child kind of likes that because it makes them feel older. It makes them feel in control, and it makes them feel like they're their parents' allies. Mm-hmm. And that, when that kind of gets taken away or has to be shared, it's a part of them that gets taken away and shared. And and lot, most of the time, they don't like that. They We like to be in control. The older child is kind of groomed a little bit to keep control of the house. Uh, the younger child is a bit more free-spirited because they have all these other kids, at least one or two, looking after them where the older child didn't have that. So it's that sense of there's a little bit of a word I'm looking for where camaraderie almost between the parent and the oldest child.
0: Yeah. And I think parents, it really helps if you're going to take something away, which means you're taking some of all the things you just mentioned away from the oldest. It helps to at least recognize before you do it, that that's, that's perceived as a loss by that, that former oldest child now second child. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll come to talking about things you could be, Proactively to help alleviate some of that. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Being Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash JBF support. That is bitly B I T dot L Y slash all cap J B. B, F, then cap S for support. So J, B, F, S, that's all capitalized, then UPPORT. Again, the coupon code to get you these courses free is going to be on that page as well. And the courses are Raising Resilient Kids with Dr. Ken Ginsberg, Raising a Child with ADHD to a Successful and Healthy Adulthood with Dr. Ned Halliwell, Unexpected Stresses for Newly Adoptive Parents, Practical Solutions to Typical Food Issues with Dr. Katja Rao, and Parenting Children Who Have Experienced Trauma with Karen Buckwalter. Make sure you go to the bit.ly slash support to get information on these courses. All right, now I want to talk about mark something you brought up earlier and that is it's uh, an added complication is that very often children who older children who are adopted or fostered into a family have experienced early life trauma and loss and this early life trauma and loss and sometimes also things like prenatal exposure absolutely can affect their uh, emotional and developmental age. While they may be 12 chronologically, they may be emotionally on a younger and developmentally even on a younger level. And so then it's really complicated because you're bringing a 12-year-old into the family, and the who is displacing the oldest as uh, who was a 10, but the 12-year-old is really more emotionally eight. And so you've got a couple of different things. You've got a 12-year-old chronologically and a 10-year-old chronologically and a 10-year-old emotionally and an eight-year-old emotionally. And boy, that's, that's just kind of overwhelming <laughs> just to even think about it. So first of all, Mark, how common is it for children uh, who are adopted from at an older age to have a different, there be a gap between their emotional developmental age and their chronological age?
1: I would say a hundred percent. No matter how resilient a child is, who grew up or had a part of their life take place in 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 a difficult circumstance, in order to survive to cope, it takes something from you. Uh, so, whenever you're adopting an older child, you're going to have to keep that in mind. Like. Sometimes I would hear in foster care, oh we want an older child so that we don't have to do all the baby things, change a diaper, care, you know, be around Mm 24-7. And I would say you have to do all of that whenever a new child is coming into your home. You have to help teach them the culture of that home and at the same time learn a little bit about their culture, learn and maybe not even a little bit about them, where they came from and be open to what type of behavior they might be experiencing so that you know, and then you can, I don't want to jump into the converse, you know, jump ahead of the conversation, but help your children with the adjustment also. So I, I think just to sum up, whenever you're bringing an older child into the home, be prepared to spend time in the home with the new family formation. Mm-hmm. It's not a two week thing. You really want to get as much time off from work as you possibly can and your partner to stagger it so that you have a lot of supervision, a lot of nurturing going on to help everybody in the family during the beginning process. Because if the beginning process is done well enough, it makes it easier throughout this whole process of adjustment. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes very good sense. One of the... Concerns that we often hear about disrupting birth water, bringing an older child into the family where there are younger children, regardless of the age gap between them, is that the older child may have experienced things in life, uh, be it they have had violence done upon them, they have witnessed violence or they have been sexually abused or they have, and sexual abuse has a fairly broad definition. It doesn't have to just mean penetration. It can also be being uh, sexualized or being exposed to adult sexuality, things such as that. So that is a real concern that, that we hear from parents and from professionals, obviously, when we're bringing an older child into a family. Uh, one of my first questions is, I think that, first of all, how can we know, or do we always know, if a child has been sexually abused in the broad sense of the definition?
1: No. I'm sorry, no. I, I would, You wouldn't know.
0: Yeah, unless a child, yeah. I, I
2: agree with Mark in that, I mean, there's no guarantee, certainly, um, and it will depend on the age. I would say that. Typically there would there would likely be some red flags or some concerning behaviors that would present themselves depending on how long the child had been in care, um, but it would also depend if they're coming from foster care or if this was an international adoption or mm-hmm. um, where the child is coming from and um, even how much information you're getting about their history. I think one thing I find problematic, Don, that I would like to point out is that kind of the assumption that I often hear and the, I feel like this fear gets blown out of proportion in the sense that there's this assumption that a child has experienced this when it comes to older child adoption. Mm -hmm. And certainly sexual abuse is, we know a thing and many children unfortunately have experienced it, but I hate that so many people are resistant to even considering Mm -hmm. child adoption because of this fear. Um, and I think there are, Many precautions you can put in place, and many conversations you can even have with the children that you're already parenting, and just as a family, in order to establish boundaries and guidelines and make sure that everyone's on the same page in terms of what's acceptable, what's not, and make sure that open communication is a thing in your home. And I'm not trying to oversimplify this or um, minimize it in any way, but I think that people get scared away from this too quickly without even really taking a step back to assess what's the real risk here and mm-hmm. what would, what could we do if that were the case. And I mean, certainly in in situations where there is the documented history of sexual abuse, um, you would have to look at that very closely and assess your family's ability and who is in the home and your ability to keep them safe and whether that would be an appropriate placement or not. And that's something you would very seriously have to consider. Um, and yeah, I think that I just... I have concerns about the um, not that it gets blown out of proportion, but how big that fear becomes
0: mm-hmm.
2: overgeneralized it gets mm-hmm. with the over the older child population.
0: I would agree, and I also think that the oftentimes the people assume. That Any child that has experienced any form of sexual abuse will then become a predator a sexual predator And that is absolutely not the case right. uh, There are that, that that Some do but many 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 do not and also that that children Can and do heal from sexual abuse. So I think both things I would agree that people we don't often give credence to uh, to that also um, that there's
1: so much sexual abuse happening. And, and, and as a society and a culture, just not only ours, it's so hard to talk about it that when we hear it, we get frightened. Mm-hmm. But I think the stats are going to be something like one in four girls are going to be sexually abused before the age of 18 and one in six boys. And you know the definition of sexual abuse is varied, but mm-hmm. those statistics are pretty darn high. So the idea that only kids in foster care or kids are gonna be adopted ha- ha- would be sexually abused is false. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and what we're really what we're talking about is if you're having this child come into your home, there might be a stronger possibility. We might say maybe this happened because we think it could happen to a child who comes from a hard place. We're not thinking that it can come from your, your child's friend. Mm-hmm. Which would be a very similar dynamic if you're leaving the friends by themselves type of thing. So the idea is to really is to help parents understand a bit more of what sexual abuse is, how prevalent it is, and ways that they can help the child and help their family.
0: Mm-hmm. let's Let's talk now, let's uh, we're going to we're going to share specific tips at the end, but let's talk about some of the things that parents can do. Regardless of what their concern is, that when you're bringing in an older child with a disrupting birth order and you have younger children in the family, what are some common sense things that parents should do until they get to know the child, until they get to know how the family interacts, and in particular with ways that families can protect younger children until they get to understand uh, what this child may have experienced and how this child is behaving. Mark, you wanna start us off by suggesting something that you would uh, encourage families to do, regardless of what they know about their the, the older child they're bringing in's background. I think depending, when, when we say older child in adoption, that's really
1: from three years old and up. So uh, it, depending on the child's actual age, If they are a younger child, they can sleep in the parent's room on a cot on something, so that the parent it helps with the bonding process. It helps them better understand the child, and it helps the child start to secure. But you you're observing this child. If there's an older child, I would suggest you put them in a room very close to yours, and that your door is open and their door is open. Not just because you fear sexual abuse, but so that you can understand. You know, at night, if you hear things, because it's 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 so many other things. It's difficulty sleeping. Uh, mm-hmm. One time, we I worked with a family a couple of years ago. Actually, didn't really work with them. It was a post adoption report where the child couldn't sleep because the home was too quiet. He came from a very very noisy environment, and when he where he was now, there was no noise, and he couldn't sleep. That he found very frightening. So the parents wouldn't have known that. And this, they got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and they saw the child awake on the couch with the light on.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so,
1: I mean, just I don't. I think I, I sometimes I tell a long story. I'm sorry, Don. No, no. Dawn. it's
0: no. I, I it's part. Of, stories help us learn, so that's a, that's a good thing. Um, and I yeah. think you can't really communicate enough. Uh, communication
1: is always one of the most the strongest and the biggest foundational blocks in a family so when a child's coming into your home through adoption you want to talk to your kids about it beforehand you want to share with them what you do know about the child and what you might what might happen so that kids themselves are aware and if there if you are knowingly bringing into uh, into your home a child who has sexual abuse you need to explain it to your child you need to, good touch bad touch Uh, You need to be very, you know, very, everybody needs to be very aware of their boundaries. We don't share the bathroom. We don't do this so that you're not setting this child up for something that they're not aware of.
2: And I would also like to add that having conversations about healthy sexuality and how to, to, because that's often what has been missing in the past with children who have experienced this. And, you know, how we do treat our bodies, how we do touch our bodies, healthy ways to do so. And, you know, not associating shame with these conversations and letting, you know, kind of setting, leading by example um, with these conversations and letting them know that, you know, your body is not a shameful thing and it is a healthy thing. And, um, you know, here are kind of the guidelines in our home and here, here's what we don't do as well. And, letting them know that they can come and talk to you if they have any questions that they want to ask about these things. And if they're not comfortable talking to you, here are some different resources that maybe you can put in you know, a place in the home so that if they ever want to read them, they can, that are obviously age and developmentally appropriate. And just making it not a taboo or shameful topic so that because they will have questions as they age. And so knowing that they can come to you instead of someone else Um, To have those conversations, I think, is very important. And also, I think approaching a topic with them um, preemptively is wise so that you're not totally shocked when something maybe does come up and just kind of, I think, setting yourself up ahead of time.
1: Uh, I would agree, Teresa, absolutely. I think because there's so much shame around sexual abuse, and fear like if i were to bring this up will they kick me out of the house yep Uh, and and confusion because the child themselves don't doesn't exactly know and the more dialogue you have the safer it is for the child to express themselves what and and what and if you can and if that comes out that's really part of the healing process so yes definitely what's age i mean we we earlier spoke about chronological age and emotional age But the chronological age, the body might be telling the child a certain thing and to be able to know what you can normalize with that. You know, at 13, expect this to happen. It's normal, it's not abnormal. There's something you can talk to me about it. At 10, this is what you can expect or not expect. So that you're, you're creating a language that all the children in the home will start to learn and it's not such a taboo subject it's not something to be ashamed of or afraid of.
2: Yeah, and I think we have to note at this point that when it comes to parenting children with trauma, and I know you have so many other episodes and um, resources on this topic, Don, but it's so imperative that parents have dealt with their own trauma histories, and specifically when it comes to sexual abuse. This is just something that you can't afford to turn a blind eye to, or not deal with if you're going to be parenting a child with a trauma history, because this is the great example. You need to be able to have these conversations in a healthy manner without shame. And until you've dealt with your own history, you can't do that.
0: And if we go back to the statistics that Mark was giving earlier, many adults have had in their past Uh, sexual abuse of some form. And so they have a trauma, sexual trauma history that has to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. It is not uncommon. Hey guys, do me a favor. Will you please tell your friends about this podcast? Obviously they would be friends that would be interested in the topics uh, we're talking about, which would be adoption and foster care and kinship care. But also many of our topics touch on parenting in general, and specifically parenting children who've experienced trauma. Almost everyone finds out about podcasts through their friends. I certainly know that is the case for me, and I suspect it's the case for you. So please do me a favor. Uh, When you're talking with your friends and the topic of, of either adoption or foster care comes up, or parenting in general comes up, if you're a fan of this show, please let others know about it. Thanks. All right, so these are some of the practical things. And if you were to uh, see a child who is sexually exploring more than you are comfortable with, then uh, setting up safeguards about the child not being left alone and talking with the child about uh, what they touch and when they touch and where they touch and things such as that. But the parents being around in order to notice it and not leaving children alone especially at the first couple of months when the child is in the home. Would that also be a good advice, Mark?
1: Absolutely. Yes, the more interaction the parents have with their child and the children, the more opportunity there is for connection, for healing, for understanding, for finding things to love about this child that you didn't even
0: know you were going to
1: fall in love with
0: so uh, mark is is disrupting birth order a predictor of adoption disruption or foster placement disruption uh it, it means the uh failed placement where the uh, the child goes back into care or another parents are found is is disrupting birth order a predictor of that
1: no not at all i don't think there've been any real studies with that but uh as we were talking about earlier there's so many different variables, and it's very seldomly the birth order. It's uh, the preparedness of the family, it's the preparedness of the child, it's the, you know, it, there's the underlining issues, possibly reactive attachment disorder. There's so many other things besides birth order that can interfere with the child leaving a home. And I believe that with proper support and understanding going into the adoption and supports once the child's in the home, that there should be very, very few chances of disruption because the parent made the decision to adopt this child, not the child, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. So we, the, the parent really has to know that they want this child, that adoption is right for them.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, Teresa, I want to now come back to something you raised earlier and I think of it as a cousin to disrupting birth order, and that is uh, virtual twinning or artificial twinning, which are terms that we use when a family adopts a child of a similar age to a child already in the family, and usually a child within nine months of a child already in the family. And some, uh, some people think of it as a child in the same uh, grade in school. So that's what we call, goes by different things, but virtual twinning or artificial twinning. And that does happen when we, or it can happen when we are adopting older children. And in a way, it's just a variation. It's a different type of disrupting birth order, even if the birth order is kept the same, if the children are so close in age, it has its own issues. Uh, Teresa, what are some of the difficulties of virtual twinning or creating artificial twins?
2: So as I was starting to explain earlier, um, the sense of kind of competition between the two children can... Certainly be um, problematic. Certainly, you know, it, like you were mentioning, Don, that they, if they're in the same grade, there can be, you know, like who's getting the better grades. You know, if a child has experienced significant neglect or trauma and they're at a d- different developmental age, or, um, you know, re- if they have something going on um, that might lead them to not have the same type of privileges as the other child, that can further exacerbate that um, competitiveness and maybe. There's mm-hmm. some resentment between the two children and, you know, for a child who is already in the home or was previously in the home and then having another child enter the home, you know, maybe having to share some of the same friends or if um, the sibling is now like on their soccer team, it might feel like even more of their world is being impacted by this and that they don't, you know, even have like that school environment or you know, their soccer club or whatever, um, as, you know, the place to be just themselves or just as their own.
0: Mm-hmm. So that
2: can be an additional stressor for the child.
0: hmm Mark, any other additional difficulties that you can think of when children are virtually the same age inside the family?
1: No, I, I think that Teresa hit on, the biggest thing is it, is that sense of competitiveness. There'll always be one well, for different reasons, might do better in school, might do better at this, and that's a, not such a good feeling. And then that also that sense of identity: where do I fit in as a nine-year-old? And my mm-hmm. sibling's nine-year. You know, there's not that sense of well, you're older than me, or I'm older than you. It's we're almost tied, mm-hmm. so it kind of does mess up a little bit with identity.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And you know, one of the ways that parents will often inadvertently try to uh, try to negate some of the competitiveness is by saying to one, well, you're really good in school but your brother is really good in sports or you've got book smarts, but your brother's got uh, street smarts or common sense or something along those lines, which in its own way is limiting the limiting both children as well. But that's a tendency that parents have because they want to build up the child who's not as good in school. Uh, but it, they're doing it by way of oftentimes undermining the common sense. So let's say that's the one that... that uh, you know, the telling the 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 child who's not good in school, saying, "Well, but you've got good common sense, and your brother's just got good book sense." Uh, so things like that that parents try to do, which seems to me to be just exacerbating in some ways, or limiting, I should say, the limiting. It's, it's equally limiting to both children. Any thoughts on that, Teresa? Um,
2: I I think that's absolutely spot on. That it is <laughs> limiting and um a little bit offensive in some way too. <laughs> um but I think that I mean, and maybe you're going here next on in terms of um, you know, things that you can do to Yeah.
0: So what how can you minimize some of the negative impacts? Because their tendency is to try to build up the weak one, but without but you want to do it in a way that doesn't tear down the one that's strengths as well. So what can parents right. do? So I mean I think and this can be applied to most of the issues that we've discussed.
2: I think um, you know, giving the child a space to voice their feelings and affirming those feelings and, um, you know, normalizing them. And um, and I think also not feeling threatened by those emotions. You know, we were talking about disruption, and um, we do know that one of the predictors of an adoption disruption is when parents feel like the children already in the home um, are being negatively impacted by a placement. And so I think that being aware of that and having realistic expectations and knowing that this might be rocky at first after placement and setting um some supports up for the all children and all family members who might need it ahead of time is wise for families. And I think you know things like regularly affirming the child's place in the family, making sure they know, you know, hey you're still my little buddy, you know, like and you're still you know you'll always be like the first whatever first daughter that was born to the family or that was placed in the family and um, you know, reminding them of your love for them. And um, of course, simple, well, they sound simple, but I know given the day-to-day craziness of life, it might not be that easy to spend individual time with kids, but um, it certainly is important and reminds them that you mean those things that you're saying to them. So mm-hmm. um, things like that. And I also think modeling confidence, you know, a lot of this is kids pick up on parent emotions. And, you know, I think a topic like disrupting birth order and, you know, artificial twinning, it's, it's been very taboo historically. And I think that um, maybe the anxieties behind that, and with, you know, older child adoption in general, too, you know, certainly there are a lot of anxieties around placement, and kids pick up on that. But if parents are able to model that confidence and reassure kids, that
0: goes a long way. I like that. And that really makes actually really good sense. Yeah. Next week begins National Adoption Month. In honor of this special month, Creating a Family is starting a scholarship fund to provide free training courses for parents adopting special needs kids. Kids with special needs caused by abuse, neglect, birth defects, or prenatal exposure often have behaviors and health conditions that make parenting more difficult. These parents need training and support, both pre-adoption as well as post-adoption, as they navigate the waters of what it really means to raise this child. Creating a Family Special Needs Parenting Scholarship Fund will provide our top-notch courses to these special parents for no charge. Please consider giving just $20 to cover a course. You can get more information and donate at CreatingAFamily.org slash scholarship. We would really appreciate it. Thanks. We have been sharing some really positive tips that that can help minimize some of the disruptions that disrupting birth order or artificial twinning would would cause to a family. One of the ones that that has been, and and I'm going to go around and let each of you share some of the tips, but I'll start with one that was, I think Mark, you mentioned at the very, very beginning, and that is plan on spending time in the home with your new family. Simplify your life. Get as much time off as you can get so that you've got, get help, you know, with the, some of the chores, you know, no fancy meals. Just spend time being a family and getting to know your new family unit. That's one I think you said at the very beginning. Mark, you want to throw out either one that you've already said or a uh, or a new tip that you could that kind of ease, ease the transition for a new family form through uh, that disrupts birth order or artificial twins.
1: I think the is spending time, as, as much time as possible as a family, but also finding little bits of time to carve out for each child, the child that's already been in the home that you have a relationship with, that you know that you share some th- things with, be it a sense of humor or a certain type of food or something that you did before that child came into the home, that could still be special while you're looking for things to find that are special between you and this child, because they are going to need some special bonding time with the parents. Mm -hmm. And that could be difficult if they don't know how to do it, or they've had a couple caregivers in the past. So it's um, really to to, to look at the time that you have and how to best
0: spend it. Okay, great one. Yes, and and often that requires some proactive thinking on the parent's part. And, and quite often it requires getting some extra help. Uh, have a, a, a mother's helper come in uh, to help, you know, an older teenager come in one day, one afternoon a week to free you up. Make certain that uh, the parents uh, have some... Uh, Saturday morning, uh, have uh, one parent stay with the majority of kids, and and let uh, the parent another parent take one child off. There are things that you can do, but you've got to be proactive and think in advance. Ask grandma to come over, send all the kids over uh, to uh, grandma and grandpa's house, and uh, have keep one child with you or something along those lines. But it takes thinking about it beforehand.
1: And I, I would also like to say, lots of times we talk about two two parent families. If you're a single parent, the same would go into place. Who's your support? Mm-hmm. Uh, could your one child's godparent or your, your good friend or your grand, so that you have that support so that you can spend some of that extra time or special time with the child's coming in if you don't have an, another partner to tag team off of?
0: I'm so glad you raised that because it, it as a single parent, Looking to your support, getting them lined up ahead of time, getting them to commit ahead of time, uh, and say, "Yes, I will take, uh, I will take the new child for an ice cream cone, you know, once a week, or we'll go out and and uh, play ball uh, in the field uh, once a week," and that gives you and the existing child in the family. But it it helps to bring it to the fore and think about it. So that's a great suggestion. I'm glad you brought up our single foster and uh, adoptive parents. Okay, Teresa, any uh, any other tips that we haven't mentioned?
2: Um, yeah, so specific to the virtual artificial twinning, um, I do think it is important to continue giving children as much autonomy as possible. So, you know, letting them have that alone time with their friend. I think they're, it's, of course, understandable that there might be that temptation to let um, the new member of the family join with the sibling, you know, when they go out with their friends or, you know, when they're having a play date or whatever but acknowledging that it's important for that child to still feel like they're independent and that they are their own person and that they have their own life. So balancing the two. And certainly when it comes to school, I, most schools are very receptive to the fact of having the, ch- the children placed into diff, uh, separate classrooms. And um, again, just going back to that whole have, letting them develop their own identity separate from one another, I think is incredibly helpful.
0: Uh, Yeah, that seems a great one. Yes. Uh, One I would throw out is, we talked about it a fair amount at the beginning, and it is, I think, without even thinking about it, we parents often tie privileges exclusively to age, and because it's a natural thing, because our children who have been with us from a young age will often be on a similar chronological age will be similar to their developmental and emotional age, and as a result, privileges naturally fall, along chronological age, but it helps to recognize which privileges we have given associated with age and how that how those privileges will be impacted when a new child comes in. And we may need to separate the privilege from the age. The ability of staying at home when mom goes to the grocery store in the past had been left with for a 12-year-old. That That was the age in the family that you could stay at home for the hour that mom's going to go to the grocery store, but when you bring a new child in, you may have to consciously before that say we've got to be able to do certain things, or there are certain reasons why you have that 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 exists that you then are allowed to stay alone. That's not that are separate from your chronological age, assuming that the new child you don't feel comfortable leaving alone. You're not sure of their emotional developmental age. All right, Mark, any others that you would like to throw out?
1: No, I think that's uh, not to get too deep into it, but I think that that's, an, that's a good amount of things to work on and think about when you're thinking about adoption, or if you've already adopted things that you can incorporate into your home. I, I you know, For me, it's really about communication and communicating with each child individually, and then as your family as a whole. This mm-hmm. is what the Davenports do. This is who we Davenports are. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. Oh, and
1: one other thing I would say, I'm sorry, is um, depending on the age, well, not even depending on the age of the child, but you're always bringing a little bit of that child's culture into your home because that culture is always with them. So you're always celebrating a part of that child who's different from your family because it's intrinsic to them, if, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does, actually. That's a, yeah. And it's actually respectful and, and, and honors where this child came from. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I, I think of too is that we, we seem to, to think in terms of disrupting birth order exclusively when we're talking about fostering or adopting. And yet, when we blend families through divorce and remarriage, we're often blending children and disrupting birth order so we have some we have a a fairly common thing that happens in our society and we do it all the time and yet it, and we don't make it seem like it is the, it is it's detrimental to to all of the children and yet we tend to do that when we think about it through adoption i'm not sure if have either, either of you thought of that as a as a similarity teresa absolutely um, i think there are Many similarities
2: between the two. and you know I think it highlights the fact, and I think it puts things in perspective in terms of the um, normalcy of this and how families are built in so many different ways. and um, and I also I like to think about the kinship role of this and how so many families do take in, you know maybe a cousin or, mm-hmm. um, or a relative who you know who knows what the circumstance might be. but you know, oftentimes it's just, it's out of necessity and you need to do it. So you do it and the family will adjust. And, um, and I think with some of these issues, you know, I just think this is one of those antiquated kind of taboo things that historically people just didn't really want to touch because they were told not to touch it. And I think being prepared and conscientious as you enter the journey, like you should be always with adoption,
0: you can do it well and you can do it right. So Teresa, what would be some warning signs that parents need to get help? That the family is not is not adjusting well. The children who the disruption in the family of the children are not as adjusting as well as you had hoped. What are some of the warning signs?
2: Sure. So I think honestly, preemptively, just setting up the supportive resources, first of all, is always a good idea. I think that having a family therapist um, and/or individual therapist for both the parents and the child um, is a good idea. I think siblings should certainly be included in that. If not on like an occasional basis to be brought into that um, conversation to check in and see how they're doing and have a space where they feel like their feelings can be shared. So I think doing it preemptively is smart and um, I wish I could require it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as far as red flags go, I think, you know, if you feel like you're in trouble, are you are. And so, you know, if if things are really hard, if you feel like you're not buying, if you just, if it's feeling like it's a real struggle, reach out for help. You know, I I hesitate to give like a list of red flags because I just, I feel like deep down, if you feel like you're having a hard time and things aren't going really well, reach out.
0: Asking for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. There's so much out there now. I mean, one of the, you can Google things. There's so much information that you can assess. Ex- access. There are so many groups now. Um, remember, adoption isn't taboo like it was before. It's not secretive. So much of adoption is transracial families. Um, and you really have to find your community, your support systems, uh, because adoption is a different way of family forming. And there's things that you know that so that your your family doesn't feel like they're the only one brief you were you were speaking before there's there's a little there's some difference between a family that's formed between two families coming together and a family through adoption because the family coming together through marriage both sets of kids have their own advocates built into the marriage where the adoption child mm-hmm. he has to come into the into the into the family on his own or on her own. And it's a different dynamic at play there. So when you have an adoption community, uh, when you have people that to talk to who've experienced what you've experienced or, it, or are in the same boat with you, it's easier to express your frustration and find out well, what is sort of normal and what is not normal. Mm-hmm. And all that really helps, will help the situation out
0: it's it's such and I'm really glad you pointed that out that there are some distinctions about blending a family through adoption versus blending a family through divorce and remarriage. And that's a really important one that you pointed out, that uh, the child who comes into the family often has no advocate. I mean, even in the sense that that somebody who is only rooting for them, so, yeah, such a good point. Well, thank you so much. Mark LaCava and Teresa Berno for talking with us today about disrupting birth order. This is, uh, as we encourage and we have more older child adoption, this is an issue that comes up more and more in in our families. And so I I truly appreciate your having, uh, that you're talking with us today. Let me remind everybody that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional.